Stop laughing. I can do this. Hello, and welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. Oh, Anna, your microphone's gone out. (laughs) (laughs) It's like you were miming. (laughs) I think I can hear Anna again now. Can you? Yes, I can. Alistair, can you hear me? I can can hear you, yes. uh, I think we leave the intro like that. (laughs) No, no. You're going to make me do it again. People can't see my um, podcast. I think that we could break some new ground with the world's first mime podcast. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Not Audible for Publication. (laughs) This week on The Invisible Box. (laughs) This week on The Invisible Box, Anna's walking into some really strong wind. (laughs) This is actually a good, if not a good concept, then a good sketch for a sketch comedy podcast. Um, If the whole PhD thing falls through, guys, we've got got this. We've got a thing. All right. (laughs) I'm starting over. side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. I'm Anna. And today we have Alistair. That's me. <laughs> Alistair, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's exciting. So yeah, it's very exciting to have you on. Would you mind sort of uh, introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about your research? Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm, I'm Alistair. I'm a part-time PhD student at Durham University. My research I never grew out of my love of history from when I was about 12 years old, so it's all knights and castles and that sort of thing. But if if anyone actually academic asks me, it's um, the monastic conceptualizations of knighthood and the, the narrative that monks provided of knighthood in the 11th and the 12th centuries. So you are a historian of what I like to call olden times. <laughs> yeah, it was ooh, so old. Really, really old stuff. What is the oldest manuscript you've ever licked? <laughs> the oldest manuscript I've on the record, none of them. <laughs> <laughs> off the off the record, the Carolingians did some delicious mm. stuff. Yes, that's how COVID started. Yeah, some someone ate a manuscript, and it's just it's all kind of spiraled from there. <laughs> so yeah, this whenever I try and talk to a medievalist, I immediately start to sound like a huge idiot, so I might just sort of bat this over to Anna. Anna, ask some smart questions. (laughs) Okay, well, let's start with kind of period that you're working with. Yeah, it's a complicated period because around sort of 11th, 12th, 13th centuries when you're dealing with knighthood, most of these periods, if you ever create a period, then there'll be someone who says, well, well, why haven't you included this period? Hmm." Mm. But I'm, I'm mostly looking at the roughly... 10.50 to 11.50. Around sort of morning coffee break time. Yeah, that's my favourite time of the day. (laughs) Yeah, so it's the period that's been described as the the period of the quote-unquote crisis of Kenobitism, which I think think most medievalists now don't think is a thing. But it's this period where Benedictine monasticism starts to lose its monopoly over 
monastic thought, and you start to see the rise of these new uh, orders, the the, uh, the Cistercians being being the big one, and this reform of monasticism. So I'm looking at their understanding of knighthood and knights during this period when they're trying to figure out who they are as well. So I'm going to ask a question that's either going to be laughably simple or so complicated that it's impossible to answer. I'm very excited to find out which one it is. <laughs> I'm terrified. In this period, what is a knight? That's a great question. It's also a complicated question. I knew it! <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of debate because a lot of people just sort of use the word knight willy-nilly when they really shouldn't do. Because knight evokes this sort of image of a chivalric, full-plate-armoured sort of on-the-field-of-Agincourt type of person, which doesn't exist in this period at all, to be honest. Richard Barber wrote a fantastic article quite a long time ago now, I think about 30 years ago. It says, when is a knight not a knight? And his argument was basically that on the Battle of Hastings, there were, to use his words, there were no knights, only mounted warriors, and there is a difference. And I sort of agree. So the, the Latin, sometimes I'm working with uh, manuscripts and textual sources, the Latin tells us about milites and miles, knights and knights. Translate it like that. But to say a knight means that they've been knighted, which means that there's some sort of knightly order, which there kind of isn't. But then my research is telling me that the monks sort of pretended that there was. It's a very complicated question, and one which I've tried to get around in my own research by I'm just I'm not going to translate it. I'm just going to use melees and milites because that's what they used. So if I'm trying to understand what the monks thought. I need to use the language that the monks used. I don't think that answers the question. <laughs> Have you been tempted at all to write the whole thesis in Latin, thus neatly swerving any questions of transliteration? Would you believe I haven't been tempted to do that at all? No. I use a lot. There are a lot of words I do. I do stick to the Latin, which means that almost every conference paper presentation I give usually has to begin with an opening slide of these are the words I'm going to be using. Because some of them can get quite technical, but I, I like to think that um, only some words need to be in Latin. I desperately hope that no one's expecting me to write any more in Latin than I absolutely have to. I've been working with Latin, obviously. My Latin's fine, he said. Better than it needs to be in the year of our Lord 2020. Yeah, be better than it needs to be, but not as good as it should be, perhaps is the best way to put that. So is your research kind of concerned with characters? Are there, say, like specific monks and specific knights who come up again? Or is it more broad? Is it about, you talked about these particular orders and particular roles. Is it more about the sort of the idea of a knight? Or do you have, do you have a favourite knight? <laughs> <laughs> I'll answer the sensible question first with a sensible answer. And then we'll get on to the silly bit. Oh, I can't wait to find out which one of my questions was the silly one. <laughs> it's more about more general orders and so forth. The broad perspective is to fit it within the idea of an ordered society. This idea that God has made functions within society because those functions ought to exist within society. And if you think about any form of ordering of society, the sort of traditional one, which was not universally accepted but was quite popular was the, the trifunctional society, those who pray, those who work, and those who fight. And it's quite striking that those who fight 
warriors of some description are considered a completely necessary part of society. And so my research is sort of trying to understand how monks, who mostly hated militaries and knights for walking around and ruining everything, how they try to reconcile that with the fact that technically they ought to exist in a certain form, in a certain way. If you look at things like the peace and truce of God movements of the 10th and 11th centuries, there's a zenith. There's a lot of these movements by the church to say you should not fight on certain days, you should only fight under certain conditions. But again, what is notable by its absence there is nobody, pretty much, claims that you shouldn't fight at all. If you do it the right way, and for the right reasons, in the right time, then yeah, go for it, go wild. So that's sort of the broad overview. Do I have a favourite knight? There are some good characters. There's Robert of Belém is a fantastic character. He's a Norman lord in the late 11th and start of the early 12th century. I love him so much because he's one of the key characters in the Historia Ecclesiastica, which is a great big history book written by a monk called Alderic Vitalis. And he hates Robert with an absolute passion because he Belém is the, the lands of Robert are quite close to saint Vaux, which is the monastery that Alderic was writing from. And he keeps going around and, and ravaging the landscape and killing people that he shouldn't be killing. There's a wonderful part of this story where Robert's mother, Mabel, who was apparently even more nightmarish of a woman than Robert was as a knight, is murdered in her bath. And you can almost feel Alderic's nose bleeding from the effort of saying, you really shouldn't be going around murdering noble women in their baths, but I can't stay mad because she was so rubbish. <laughs> there are loads of favourite knights, obviously. Loads of favourite monks, but too, too many to list. I could go on for another 20 minutes, but I won't. What is a really common misconception about the time that you research or the subject that you research? A really common misconception. I think one, one of the main common misconceptions is that thing that I've touched on already, that the fact that there were knights. Another thing, a common misconception is also that monks didn't get on with knights at all. And that monks were these sort of cloistered, completely separate entities who were not connected with the real world at all. In fact, monks were very connected with the material world, even though a lot of the more theologically inclined and, and mad ones hated being connected to the real world, but they couldn't avoid it. So that is a sort of another layer to, to this investigation of comparing knights and monks. You've got to understand they're not separate, even slightly. Knights gave up the world and entered monasteries quite a lot of the time. There is a clause in the... 1102 Council of London, which is very brief, and I wish it was longer. It just says, a new rule, basically, abbots should not make knights. So clearly, there was somewhat of a phenomenon in the late 11th century that abbots, leaders of monastic communities, were going around creating new knights. So the the, the connection, I think, between the two of them is, is an underappreciated facet, especially by non... what's the word I'm thinking of? Specialists? Specialists, that's exactly the one. Non-specialists, yeah. How has been continuing research during COVID? Well, that about sums it up, isn't it? It's been difficult, obviously. We've all had it tough. I've been okay, actually, in terms of I've found enough things to be able to reference and to be able to keep going with. I was starting to run pretty dry, 
But then I had a paleography course I did over summer, this conference paper I've just done, my review happened. So I had enough deadlines to sort of have something to do. Uh, the bigger issue, I think, has been um, mental health, of course. It, you find yourself being very... They say, don't they, and it's true, that um, doing a PhD is a very isolating and lonely experience at times, when you're also not allowed to see anybody outside your own household. <laughs> My productivity has tanked, I think. I've not done as much work as I would have liked to have done. Mm. But I guess I've been lucky in terms of being able to access things. I know some people who have all but had to put their project on hold or just do something else completely because their plan and their, the, the things they want to access just isn't possible. That's basically been the message from the UK Research Councils this week as well. Anyone who's funded by a research council who didn't get the automatic extension that was offered only to final years has basically been told, like, oh, just do a different project. Who cares how much time you've got left? (laughs) So you're just going to have to be adaptable. I think most people I know have been able to be somewhat flexible, but we do know people who've had to yet completely redevelop a project because they couldn't travel for their research or or they couldn't interview people the way they wanted to because it's not safe they were dealing with vulnerable populations or anything yeah so yeah i feel like as much as i'm frustrated that i didn't get to go to such and such an archive it's not been the end of the world and a lot of medieval sources are digitized these days aren't they yeah and made a lot more available because of this a lot more resources are being made available from these um, uh, online archives so again i've been very lucky i'd love to well i wouldn't love to of course but uh, <laughs> it's always been atrocious I, oh, I would have gotten so much more done otherwise oh. but i'm not going to win any any uh, phd friends by saying this but i've been fine relatively speaking well i think it's kind of important for there to be narratives of fineness out there as well. I think it's been hard for a lot of people, as you say, and I also think that all of us are inclined to say, well, yes, of course, you know, it's it's been tough for me, but other people have it so much worse, and you don't want to be sort of being very negative about your own situation when you know that, you know, you someone else has had a tougher time. Yeah. But it's also been a very negative time, understandably. it's For a lot of people, it's been an extremely negative experience. But I don't think we should be sort of... I don't really know how to put this, but I don't think we should be ashamed of having been okay on the days when we have been okay. I think we need to celebrate those days. And it's as important to put the message out there that it's not every day is going to be horrendous and you might even have the odd good day during all this. Yeah, no, that's, that's a very good point, actually. I was part of the reason, kind of, when we started PhD, why we started this, was because every story of PhDs, because those PhDs were, in a way, well-meaning and wanted to prepare us for how isolating it can be, all of those stories were absolutely horrible. Yeah, <laughs> it was very, it was front and centre in everything we heard, like, you will be lonely, you will be depressed, you know, it's going to be really hard. And of course you know, in some ways it has been, but PhD has also been, up until this year, the most intensely social time of my entire life. And I've spent more time and made more friends in sort of social situations over the past couple of years than probably in the five or six years previous. So it's not all that, but because they want to, they don't want it to be a surprise when it's that sometimes, 
the overwhelming narrative is of the tougher parts of it. So we try and talk about the positive here as well. And if you've managed to have an okay time through some of the toughest possible conditions in which to be working, I think we need to celebrate that and say, you know, big ups. Like, you did it even when it was hard. That's really important. And am I right in thinking you're uh, part-time? Yes, that's right. So have you been working at the same time or again I, again I've, I've got quite lucky because the, the work that I've been doing is uh, tutoring online. Oh nice. So that, that was always online so if anything there's been more of that and I've had to be a bit selective so you've got people coming to you saying well quick it's two months until our exams teach us all of GCSE history. No I can't do that I'm sorry but yeah, I mean, what it was tended to be a sort of a stopgap while I found an actual job, but there was so much of it going around. I managed to get so many hours that I thought, well, I'll just keep doing this. So when COVID rolls around and suddenly all oh, teaching is to take place online, all right, cool. <laughs> Seems all right to me. Which I've been quite lucky as well because I've started teaching seminars this year in the department of the university. Of course, that's all online, and I, I know how to do that now because I've been doing that for two years already. Mm. So again, it's yeah, nice. you're, you're definitely right. I, I shouldn't feel bad. I do feel that there's a little bit to me that's like I shouldn't be having. I shouldn't be. This shouldn't be so good. I shouldn't be being okay with this. But I, it's all lined up quite nicely, actually. And someone has to be okay. Like, <laughs> you're, what, you're carrying the weight of the nation on your shoulders. <laughs> Don't say that. Britain's okay guy. <laughs> and I mean, I think the thing about it is that times will always come around that just aren't as okay, because that's just the, the shape of it. So you might as well appreciate the okay times when they're there. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. absolutely. I, I, I mean, last year, the previous year, it was quite tough because I didn't have a, a full supervisor team. Oh, yeah, Anna knows all about that real cursed supervisory journey. <laughs> Look, it all worked out now. I just hope it doesn't change until I graduate. <laughs> it's, it, that's also very interesting. How did you adjust to that? How did you manage that? It was strange because I never really had a second supervisor. So I, ne- I never missed it. And I've got what turns out to be, in the Durham History Department, quite a niche time period. You wouldn't have thought so. It's the High Middle Ages. It's this Norman Conquest and all that. Yeah, but there, there was just no one in the department that does exactly that period. You've got people, so Anglo-Saxonists and going all the way up to 1050. And you've got sort of high and later medievalists aplenty, but only really one person. As I'm very grateful to Giles. Giles has been fantastic, of course. But I've, I've only just gotten around to the idea of having someone else I can talk to about it. So again, like I say, again, in, in that sense... It's difficult to say. I would have loved to have had a second supervisor, but I never had the opportunity to miss not doing. So on this podcast, we like to ask our guests if they can share sort of a a funny or we lower the pressure from funny to light, light hearted (laughs) story from their research life. And I was wondering if you have anything to share with us. My research life. Nothing funny ever happens to me. Good luck. Oh dear. This is <laughs> Be funny. <laughs> yeah, the pressure. Yeah. It's all, you know, knights and, and castles and stuff. And honestly, a lot of it's reasonably light. There's not too much in the way of particularly heavy topics. Even the murdering of women in bathtubs is sort of... It's, it's the, the eternal question that historians ask ourselves. When is long enough ago that we no longer have to care about it? <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's difficult because obviously there's quite a lot of death that goes on in my research, a lot of wars and so on. You've got to be very, very careful with how you talk about 
things like the Crusades, for example, I've found some people slipping into sort of an us versus them narrative. Ooh, that's... Don't do that. But something that's vaguely amusing, to me at least, maybe it's not funny to maybe none of this will be aired, but you know when you come across a an article or a story that's just bad <laughs> and just really baffling. I've, I've come across one of those and it was enjoyable. It was enjoyably bad. It was a moment sort of late on in my first year, part-time, so, you know, the equivalent of about five months in. I was hitting that point where I was like, oh, I'm just, I'm not entirely sure. I don't know whether I can do this imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome. I'll just read this article. And it just gets everything wrong. Like ideas, dates, spellings. It was it was so bad. And it was really affirming. <laughs> yeah, it's truly reassuring because as long as you can just have that thought. When I used to have imposter syndrome at my job, I would always just look at the colleague that I considered to be the most incompetent and think, this person doesn't worry every day whether they can't do their job. They just come in and do a horrible job. <laughs> And I've got to be doing better than them, so I'm just not going to let myself worry anymore. And yeah, there are just academics out there who just aren't aren't proofing, aren't even engaging with, you know, logical ideas, are just doing their own crazy thing, and they never wake up in the middle of the night thinking I'm a huge fraud and no one's ever going to accept me. They just do it. You know, that, that's your light's topic, then. That's a, a, a word of encouragement for your listeners. Yeah. If you're feeling down, just always have on standby something really bad. Yeah. Cheer you right up. <laughs> I remember when we had a seminar in our second year when we were setting readings and I deliberately set an article that was absolutely horrendous and Alistair was reading it because he was in the seminar and he was like, that is absolute horseshit. I, I remember sending you a message like, Anna, please <laughs> tell me you've done this deliberately because I'm not going mad, am I? This is atrocious. This is really bad. And you're like, oh yeah, no, this is, this is deliberately awful. It was an anthropologist who decided he can just wing history. <sighs> Don't you just love it? I feel like people, especially from the sort of quasi-scientific disciplines are like well what's history it's just stuff that happened in the past right it's facts we can know history like no you idiot <laughs> no one knows anything what was that um it was, those those two sinologists that we read about anna hoping tea and uh, hoping tea and evelyn roski evelyn roski yes what a what a wonderful banderous relationship they had hoping uh you you, you tell it you're, you're the sinologist of the group I, I think it's more of a generational thing that one because Hoping Tea, he was the first Asian president of Association for Asian Studies. So basically the biggest Asian studies scholar in the English-speaking world. And Evelyn Roski was similarly president of that same association, but in the 1990s. She wrote an article where she talked about how scholarship has moved on and she kind of used his work to exemplify the work that we moved on from and he did not like that. The best part of the ending of Hoping T's rebuttal to Evelyn Rolski, he literally ended his article saying she would have been better spent using her time to look at this instead. (laughs) She's wasted her time. She's wasted her time critiquing my article because I'm perfect and this is what she should have done instead. I think she, she did wait until he'd retired she was pretty cheeky, but mostly right, I think. 
her article wasn't really an argument. It was more of a summary of the field. And similarly, the article that she was referencing was, again, a summary of the field. But yeah, you can just imagine him pacing up and down. It's this kind of read. It's some of the best type of academic stuff to read, though, isn't it? It's when there's like been a, a special issue of such and such a thing and any journal article that's like a response to so-and-so and you're like, oh yeah, someone said something controversial. <laughs> well, I think another exciting thing about it is that it helps you identify the debate because you immediately know there is a debate in there. I think it's useful if you're teaching undergrads as well to kind of say to them, this is literally academic debate like there is a disagreement here so don't just assume that because something is published it's accepted by everyone i did have an absolutely weird experience with undergrads where a revisionist article was written it was the kind of revisionist article who is it's it's revising for the sake of revising and being controversial it didn't have a particularly good evidence base it I thought it was absolutely rubbish. And now all of them decided, because it's revisionist, they decided to agree with it because, you know, the, the old scholarship is old. And I was like, okay, guys, you called it recent scholarship about five times. Look at when the article was published. And they were like, when? We don't have that in my notes. And I was like, it was 1974. <laughs> it is not recent. So, Alistair, thank you so much for joining us today it's been very very enjoyable thank you thank you for having me it's been great and is there anything that you'd like to plug anything that you want to tell our listeners about that they should be checking out no i can't plug in properly <laughs> i don't see why not durham university if you're, if you're listening from durham university improvised comedy society we have workshops online at the moment at 8 p.m on tuesdays <laughs> Wherever you are, do you know what? Wherever you are, have a go at improv. Have a crack. It's great fun, and I deliver my conference papers so much better because I've spent four years acting on stage off the top of my head, being a wally in front of people. It's free. So, life advice. <laughs> Am I allowed to end on a piece of fatherly advice? For improv, improv. I'm Alistair Forbes. <laughs> I'm representing... From the improv. improv Council of the United Kingdom. <laughs> Yeah, it's been brilliant to have you on. Thank you for being our guest. Anna, thank you for hosting. Thank you very much, Georgia. And for our listeners out there, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Bye! Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.